We are going to be studying Ezekiel chapter 17. We'll begin there. So, Father, we ask that you would just bless this time in our study of Ezekiel. As Ezekiel wrote these words 2,500 years ago, they are for us uh, today. And, Lord, uh, there's something very important in what we are going to be reading. And that is, as we live in a culture and a society that loves to uh, make excuses, and um, and we see that in the proverbs that we speak uh, uh, about, it's everyone else's fault, or uh, I'm not responsible. We see that the Lord's going to tell us very clearly in His Word that the soul that sins is the one that's responsible for their sin and will be held accountable. And Lord, we need to understand that that you have freed us because we are new creation in Christ that we have been forgiven, that you've given us the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in us, to help us to live a life that you want us to, to empower us, to be your witness, to empower us to live a life pleasing to you, no longer in bondage to sin, no longer uh, under the deception of the enemy in the world, but to walk freely with you, uh, to be able to live that life that is pleasing to you. So, Lord, I pray you bless this time as we now study your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Zico, of course, uh, he is a couple hundred miles just north of where uh, Babylon was as he's in captivity. And he's with the captives, and he's having these visions. And Ezekiel, his book, is, is different than Jeremiah, who at the same time had been in Jerusalem, and he's warning the leaders of Jerusalem about impending judgment that was going to come to the house of Judah and to Jerusalem. And we also know that Daniel, a couple hundred miles south of where Ezekiel is, that he's in the palace of Babylon. He's the, uh, assisting and he's ministering there. Um, and he ends up uh, becoming a tremendous blessing and used uh, mightily in the visions that he had uh, to Nebuchadnezzar and also clear into when the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon. So God has his remnant. He has his prophets they're speaking to the people, those who have been left behind in Jerusalem, because we know that the captivity would begin in 605 B.C., where Daniel was taken off into captivity along with the choice men of Judah. And then Ezekiel would be taken in the second deportation in 597 B.C., as well as some of the treasuries of the, the house of the Lord, and then the final destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., so wherever God's people was, whether it was in Babylon or whether it was where Ezekiel was, where many of the captives would go into that area, or back in Jerusalem, God was speaking to his people, desiring for them to turn back to him, but they refused to do that. And as we saw last time, Ezekiel uses a lot of poetic language. He uses parables. He has um, you know, illustrations that he gives to give God's word. And that's what we've seen with Ezekiel going through these early chapters. And last time we saw the poetic language that Ezekiel used to describe God's love for Jerusalem. And that you uh, were something, uh, as he used the poetic language, uh, you were alone and you were struggling and uh, you were naked. And I saw you uh, in that state. But then the Lord comes along and says, I came and I washed you. Like a baby that was birthed uh, gets washed and, and I uh, would take care of you and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you um, with uh, you know, clothes and I adorned you with oil. Ornaments, and you are adorned with gold and silver. 
and your fame went out throughout the nation because of your beauty. And of course, Jerusalem was a very beautiful city, particularly when Solomon came along and he built uh, the first temple. It was magnificent. You can read about that in First Kings and then at the beginning of Second Chronicles, how it was overlaid with gold. And even the, the nations and marveled and the leaders around that area would come and, and they would see the kingdom of Solomon and just the splendor, the glory uh, that Jerusalem had. And, and, of course, Israel was united at that time. But then after Solomon, Rehoboam, the ten northern tribes broke off, and they began to decline to where eventually the house of Israel would be taken off into captivity by the Assyrians in about 722 B.C. So, you know, 150 years before Ezekiel here is prophesying. And we know that uh, even Jeremiah early in his chapters would say to Judah that you should have learned from your sister Israel because what happened to her. And of course, I believe there was 19 kings of Israel, starting with Jeroboam, to the time that they would go off into captivity. And they were all idol worshipers. None of them were godly kings. It went from bad to worse as you read particularly those chapters in First and Second Kings that talk about the kings of Israel. And you should have Judah. Judah had some good kings. They had some good kings, some godly kings like Jehoshaphat that was on the scene uh, that was Ahaz that was a godly king. Uh, he became prideful at the end of his reign and God dealt with him. Uh, Hezekiah, Josiah was the last of the good kings here before they went off into captivity. But Judah would remain in idol worship. And at this time that Ezekiel is prophesying, we see the condition of uh, the nation, that they were so far from God, refused to turn to him. And it would also, the, the, the ramifications were great. It wasn't that they were just bound down to an idol. That was bad enough. But it would bring just perversity into the land, violence into the land, uh, ripping their brothers off. We're going to see all of that as we continue here through Ezekiel. He really explains to us, and so does Jeremiah, the condition of the nation. And we can learn from that because what we're going to see this Sunday is that when Jesus you know, comes and he would say that you're faithless and perverse generation, and, and we'll look at that more closely, but that's the order that it always is. Faithless will lead to perversity, and then perversity leads to more perversity. In any generation that is faithless, in any nation that is faithless, it leads to that which is perverse, and that's what we see here. And they were burning their own children in the arms of Moloch. They were involved in immorality, all kinds of things that were taking place. So Jerusalem at one time, the beauty of the nations, and then he goes on to explain that you trusted in your own beauty. Uh, you trusted um, in what I blessed you with, and you played the, the harlot. You committed spiritual adultery. And, and then he speaks about the wickedness of Samaria and Sodom. And, but here's the thing, that Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel and the other prophets, even though they brought this strong rebuke to the people, to the nation, they never left them without any hope. And Jeremiah says there's going to be a time of a new covenant. 
that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to establish himself, the nation, restore the nation, a new covenant. He's going to give you a new heart. Um, and uh, I will be their God and they will sin no more. It's talking about a future time of the restoration of Israel. And then also we see that he uh, mentions that Ezekiel here at the end of chapter 16, after just really indicting Jerusalem and their spiritual adultery and harlotry, they says, I will remember you in my covenant that I made with you, an everlasting covenant. And so God will bring that to pass. We know that that will take place at the end of the tribulation period, even as Paul writes that at that time that all of Israel will be saved. So very important prophetic implications for us um, as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ and him establishing his kingdom and also restoring the nation of Israel. But let's go into chapter 17 as he speaks in a parable in, in riddles. We do read that, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel and say, Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with large wings and long pinions full of feathers of various colors came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branch. He cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to the land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. Verse 6, And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned towards him, but its roots were under it. So it became a vine, brought forth branches, and put forth shoots. So this parable, this riddle, is told to Israel. And we know the history of the kings, Josiah being the last of the godly kings that brought spiritual reform to the nation. But in that, as he would institute temple worship once again, he cleaned out the temple. He ordered that the uh, Levites put the Ark of the Covenant back into uh, the temple before it was full of idols. He instituted temple worship once again. They, they celebrate the Passover. Matter of fact, the scripture says is that a Passover wasn't celebrated like that um, you know, uh, for a long, long time. Even uh, it, it's amazing how uh, that Passover really wasn't celebrated. The indication is for many years as they have been involved in their idol worship. And so, you know, there was reforms, but there wasn't really true revival that took place. Even Jeremiah, that the word came through him uh, that the Lord said that you're coming to me in pretense. Uh, a lot of it was going through the motions because of what J Josiah had uh, commanded that took place. And there were some that their hearts were, truly were turned. There's no doubt about that. And the result would be that Daniel was probably born during that time. Uh, and uh, those uh, his Hebrew friends, that they loved the Lord and they had a heart for the Lord. We see that very clearly. But for the most part, they went right back into idol worship after the death of Josiah. But in this, we see that, um, that the kings would rebel against Nebuchadnezzar as he took power in 605 B.C. Uh, over Jerusalem, first came in, after defeating the Egyptians at the Battle of Shemesh. 
and he would take Daniel away. And uh, Jerusalem at that time would be under uh, the power of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And as we look at this, the eagle speaking here that we just read, the great eagle with large wings in verse 3 is speaking of King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he took the young twig, uh, and it speaks of Jehoiakim. After three months, uh, the son of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim with an N, or Jeconiah, uh, he would be taken off to, to Babylon and then replaced by Zedekiah, who was the last king before uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. But we continue reading, but there was, in verse 7, another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine bent its roots towards him and stretched its branches towards him from the garden terrace where it had been planted, that he might water it. It was planted in a good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and became, uh, become a, a majestic vine. Verse 9, thus says, The Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All of its spring leaves will wither, and no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it out by its root. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind, that's speaking of Babylon, touches it, and it will wither in the garden terrace where it grew? So Ezekiel's going to explain this more as we continue in the chapter. But the second great eagle here, spoken of in verse 7, was Egypt. And what had happened is, again, not to give, bore you with a lot of history, but it helps us understand what was taking place during this time. That after Josiah dies, J.O.A. has his son comes on the throne. And Egypt, uh, the pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, would take him away to Egypt, and that's where he would die. He only reigned for about three months. And that was not unusual because uh, Pharaoh didn't want, you know, the son of Josiah to try to avenge his father's death and be a problem and rebel. So he takes him off and then Jehoiakim, he becomes the king. And he was a terrible king. Now what happened was, is that when Jehoiakim comes on the scene in about 609 B.C., this is four years before uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in the first time into Jerusalem to seize it. And Jehoiakim, being appointed by Necho, king of Egypt, um, taking uh, you know, his older brother Jehoahaz away after three months, and Jehoiakim, the king of Judah at that time, is paying tribute to Egypt. And he does that till 605 B.C., and what happened there is, I've, I've already mentioned, is Babylon defeated uh, Egypt in this, this famous battle called the Battle of Sharshamis. So Jehoiakim, he changes alliances to keep Jerusalem from being destroyed. And he ends up paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. I believe in verse 6 that we read, where it says, its branches turn towards him. Turn towards Nebuchadnezzar. He begins to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in, takes the temple articles away. And in the second time in 597 B.C. And Jehoiakim, we saw in, in the book of Jeremiah, was a terrible king. He was one that only cared about himself. He ripped the people off. And he was one that, it's interesting, that there's some rabbinical literature that really 
tells us how much of a godly tyrant that he was. He killed men and then he took their wives. Um, he was very, very immoral. He would kill individuals and he would take their property. He was a very immoral person. We do know from Jeremiah that he wasn't interested in the word of the Lord because Jeremiah's uh, you know, scribe came to him and said, here is a word from the Lord, brought this scroll to him, and it was read to him, and he took his knife out and chopped it up and threw it in the fire. So he was godless. He wasn't interested in the things of the Lord. And so what he did was he switched alliances. He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, turned back to Egypt in about 598 B.C. And Nebuchadnezzar said, that's it. I'm going to come in the second time into Jerusalem. And he would end up, it is believed, because Jeremiah, you might recall, prophesied that Jehoiakim would end up dying. He would be cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. That's Jeremiah chapter 22. And it is believed that here came Nebuchadnezzar. Had Jehoiakim killed, Josephus writes that Nebuchadnezzar killed him and cast him out of the gates without proper barrier. Then his son, Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, would come on the scene, and he's king for three months. But Nebuchadnezzar takes him away to Babylon, again, not wanting him to avenge his father's death. And then Zedekiah came on the scene the last 11 years, and we're going to be talking about him in just a little bit. So that's the history of what was taking place. Um, godless kings, the last kings of Judah, uh, very difficult times. Uh, this second great eagle uh, being Egypt isn't going to help them. Let's continue reading in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them. Indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took his king and princess and led them with him to Babylon. And so as we look at this, as this parable is being explained, Nebuchadnezzar uh, trying to weaken the nation and put Judah under his submission, he took Jehoiakim, had him killed, Jehoiakim after three months, and we see that the nation was very weak at that time. Matter of fact, after the second deportation, very few people were left in the land in Jerusalem. He didn't want a large number of people there. Uh, to rebel against uh, Babylon and uh, people work in the land, some of the leaders that work there. Uh, we continue to see in verse 13 that Zedekiah made an oath to follow Nebuchadnezzar, be under his submission as we read, and he took the king's offspring, made a covenant with him, put him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land, uh, that is, so they wouldn't rebel, that the kingdom might be brought low and not lift itself up, but that by keeping his covenant, it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Uh, will he who does such a thing escape? Can he break a covenant to, and still be delivered? As I live, verse 16 says, The Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke with him, in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. So Zedekiah broke the covenant. Zedekiah uh, made an oath. He was to submit under uh, the um, 
submission of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And you recall that in Jeremiah that he even met with some of the leaders around, not just Egypt, as he would rebel, make, uh, you know, turn to Egypt for help. He also would talk to the leaders of Moab and and Ammon and and the others, hoping that they could all form an alliance and then maybe we can overthrow Babylon. And I think that part of that came by the false teachers that were saying that, hey, the captivity isn't going to last much longer. Uh, We'll be back in the land Nebuchadnezzar is going to fall, uh, that false hope that they were given. So Zedekiah broke the covenant, sought help from Egypt. And as we read in verse 18, since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live surely my oath, which he despised and my covenant, which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. So in breaking the oath with Babylon, this time in 586 B.C., the third and final time, we see that Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem. Jeremiah said, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Because in rebelling, listen, rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, you're rebelling against the will of God. And Zedekiah wouldn't listen to him. He said, don't try to escape because it's not going to work. And Zedekiah tried to escape. He was captured. His two sons were killed before him. His eyes were plucked out. And then he was taken off to captivity. You know, he looked to Egypt. Egypt, of course, as we've talked about many times, is a picture of the world. And what can happen is, and we see that 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 had been a trend for them. Isaiah chapter 30, in the time that Isaiah was ministering, Woe to the rebellious house of Israel, for you seek counsel, but not of me. You go to Pharaoh, you go to Egypt, and Pharaoh's wisdom is not going to help you. It's all in vain. Those fast Arabian horses are not going to be able to help you. And the Lord was saying, turn to me, come back to me, learn of me, return to me, is what we see in Isaiah chapter 30. And it's such an important reminder for you and for me, as he says, in returning and rest, you shall be saved, and quietness and confidence shall be your strength. And he says, blessed are those who wait for me. Um, Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And then, as we go to him for counsel, because he's the wonderful counselor, he is true. He wanted his people to turn to him for counsel, for him to deliver them. So come to me, wait on me, and then you're going to hear from me. You'll hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or whenever you turn to the left. And they had not learned that lesson. And here at this time, they're turning back to Egypt. And that can happen to us as Christians, especially, listen, in the day in which we're living in. Listen, there's, there's help that is out there. But when it comes to, you know, godly wisdom, when it comes to godly counsel, we are to look to him, not to worldly counsel, worldly wisdom. Because the world will not help you. And, and, and Pharaoh's advice is foolishness. And we can look to the world to, to be our help when the Lord is saying, I want to be your help. I want you to come to me. I want to speak a word to you. I want to guide you in truth. And that's why it's so important that we continue in the Word of God and and we gain from these lessons here going through Ezekiel. Even though the words are harsh and it seems difficult, 
that we know that the Lord is saying that I want to be your help. I'm your wisdom. I'm the one that's your stability. I'm your provider. I'm your protector. And yet they refuse to turn. And here is Zedekiah. He rebelled against the will of God. And whenever we rebel against the will of God, against the ways of the Lord, it's just bad news. And we're headed in a direction that leads to captivity and bondage and, and all kinds of trouble and difficulty that comes into our lives. So we see that there's, again, this pattern of not leaving them without any hope. And in verse 22, thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out, and I will crop off from the topmost of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. And on the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and I will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar, Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. So I believe what is being spoken of here um, in these verses is that don't fight against the will of God. He knows what is best for you and for me. His will is good. His ways are good. But Jesus here, again, Israel's going to be exalted. And Jesus will come and establish his kingdom. And Israel will be lifted up once again. Here's the thing also to remember, that the nations of the world are going to go away. And we see that particularly in Daniel and his visions in chapter 2, which is called the Foundation of Bible Prophecy, when he speaks about those empires that would be on the scene from this time here to the second coming of Jesus Christ, that the rock came and hit that image that represents all those kingdoms, even the future revived Roman Empire that is the ten toes, you know, the feet of iron mingled with clay, and, and it will all be crushed, and then his kingdom will be established forever. And that's what we need to keep in mind. The kingdoms of this earth are going to eventually go down. And God's kingdom is going to be established. So we're a part of that kingdom, and we can rejoice in that. And as we move into chapter 18, chapter 18 is a really important chapter, especially in the day in which we're living in, because we live in a day where we're the most excuse-oriented society and culture ever. That it's everyone else's fault the way that I am. And there is even teachings in the church of generation generational curses, things like that. And I think chapter 18 is really going to make it clear uh, that generational curses, that you are cursed because of mom and dad, and and they'll take some verses out to to make clarity that the soul that sins um, shall surely be responsible for their own sin. So let's begin to look at that in chapter 18. And the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean? Uh, when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten uh, sour grapes and the children's uh, teeth are set on edge. So Jeremiah quote this proverb in Jeremiah chapter 31. So it must have been a well-known proverb among the children of Israel. And the point of the proverb was that the children were paying for the sins of their father. They thought that God was punishing them unjustly. They didn't think God was being fair to them. And they weren't experiencing judgment because of their sin. 
They thought it was because of their father's sin. It's because of the past. This here, these people refused to turn to the Lord. And yet they were blaming mom and dad for it. Their fathers have eaten sour grapes. Their children's teeth are set on age, on edge, that is. Verse 3, as I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. He says, no more did I want to hear it. And behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So God refutes this proverb. Don't blame mom and dad for your refusal to be obedient to what God has told you to do. So the people were denying their own guilt. Remember that they weren't interested in repenting. They were only interested in continuing in their sin and rebellion against God. Matter of fact, they had said, we read in Ezekiel, we don't need God. You know, we've been blessed. We don't need God anymore. We don't need to turn from him. And so we know that God had said that, for I am the Lord, a jealous God, visiting the iniquities upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So what the Lord was saying in giving the Ten Commandments there in the book of Exodus is I'm going to keep visiting generation after generation of sin, that my word doesn't change, uh, my ways don't change, and I'm going to be convicting and I'm going to be visiting the iniquity um, generation after generation after generation. And even Ezekiel traces this judgment back to the father's disobedience to Manasseh. Yeah, but, but here's the thing. But the point of these passages was that the effects of sin are very serious and they are last, last, long lasting. You know, the effects of sin that uh, our parents growing up in a home full of sin. Sure, it has serious and long-lasting uh, effects on us. And here what they were saying, though, is that God punishes the innocent uh, because of mom and dad, because the ancestors evil. They thought that even in Jesus' day. Remember the blind man? Uh, he was born blind in chapter 9 of John. And, and the disciples asked Jesus, you know, why is the man blind? Who sinned? Did he sin in his mother's womb or did his parents sin? That's what they were asking. And even the rabbis talked and taught that when somebody's born with a physical infirmity, that they sin in the mother's womb or it was because of their parents. So what we're reading here is we're being told we are responsible before God individually. There is accountability and there is uh, responsibility that we have for our own sin. And we won't stand before God grinding our teeth and saying it's because of mom and dad. So this is very important because, again, as I said, we live in you know, a society and a culture that we love to pass on blame for our sinful behavior. Once again, I want to emphasize, sure, growing up in an ungodly home has repercussions and consequences. But here the Lord is saying, I don't want to hear the Proverbs, that we are innocent, uh, and it's mom and dad's fault, and, and we haven't done anything wrong. When they continued to hear the word of the Lord and refuse to turn to the Lord. We continue in verse 5. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he is not eaten on the mountains nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, 
nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one of violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exact usury, that is taken, you know, given um, a loan to somebody and ripping them off with high interest, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and and man, if he's walked in my statues and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. Surely he shall live, says the Lord God. So here is, as we read these verses in verses um, five through uh, nine, that talking about a person who follows God's way, and you do this out of a love for God because you believe God's word. You're not involved with idols. Um, but have a heart for God. And it is an interesting list that is here that we can go through and say, Lord, I, I want to live this way. I, I don't want to, verse 7, I really, you know, I don't want to oppress anyone. You know, we're not to oppress anyone. We're not to rip people off. We're not given to violence. We're to be sensitive and giving to others um, and ministering to them and being just in our judgment towards others. And then in verse 10, he says, if he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood and does any of these things and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols or committed abomination, if he's exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he does, has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. So the son can't depend on the righteousness of his own parents. He's responsible for his own actions. And if he continues down the path of wickedness, then he's going to be found guilty is what is being said. Let's continue in verse 14. If he, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, has covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statues. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for the father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So what's being said here, that... If he sees the sin of his father, and again, parents, how we raise our children does affect them. And they do learn from us behaviors and attitudes. And, and children and grandchildren can pay dearly for the sins of their parents. There's no question about that. But I also, what is being said to know, that we as Christians, if we come to Christ, and that's why it's so important that we give people Jesus, that as they come to Christ, having the Holy Spirit that dwells in them, we don't have to follow after our parents' footsteps. We're free from that. That he became a curse for us. That we might be forgiven, as the scripture says. He became sin. The one who knew no sin. 
that we might be free from sin as he died on Calvary's cross. And we don't have to follow our parents' footsteps, and we don't have to make the same mistakes because we're a new creature in Christ and have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us live a life after him. Now, there has been a teaching in the church called generational curses. And in generational curses, what it says is that, you know, you're in bondage, you're going to follow the sins of your parents, and it's a curse. And they get that again from the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, um, as he says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. We need to keep that in mind um, as we read that. And and here's the thing to remember uh, as we consider this, is that uh, that the Lord is not saying that I'm going to get you because of mom and dad. And that's the way it's taught in generational curses, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation and those who hate me. In other words, he's not the Godfather. I'm going to get you because of what your parents. He's God the Father. And what he's saying is I'm going to convict you of sin generation after generation after generation. That if that generation sins, and here he's speaking to a nation that had rebelled against the Lord. And this generation was saying, well, we're going through the difficulties because mom and dad did something or our fathers did something. It's their fault. That was the proverb. And the Lord is saying, no, you are responsible. This generation, the house of Israel, for your sins, you've rebelled. And he shows mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We have the spirit of God that we can be free from all of that. And I know that if we grow up in a home and there's abuse and there's alcoholism and, and all these different things that it has those negative effects that, that the children can learn from their fathers and it can be passed on. But if we become a Christian, we don't have to say, well, I'm just this way. It's generational curses. It's just the way it is. Um, we're free from that. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to free us from. We don't have to be in bondage to those things. Isn't that the good news? That's the good news of the gospel. We don't, we're free from the world and from sin and the power of sin in our lives. And you see that examples in the scriptures. Manian, I was reading just recently in Acts chapter 13. He was one of the leaders of the early church in Antioch. He's there. He was a, a descendant. He was uh, brought up in the home of Herod. You talk about a dysfunctional, sinful household. And there he is with the believers. And he's praying and sending Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journeys. So our society, our culture says... You know, take the flaws of the parents and it justifies the actions of the children. And culture sees it that way, but God doesn't. And what the Lord is saying is each person is responsible for their own actions. And notice that the Lord says if you continue down that road of wickedness, if you continue down that road, and that's the thing that for you and for me, listen, the good news is we've been free from all that. We have the living God, the Spirit of God in our hearts that help us that we don't have to continue down the road of abuse or alcoholism or whatever the case may be. Yet you say, verse 19, as, as we continue, that the Son shall not bear the guilt to the Father because the Son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. 
The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt to the father, nor the father bear the guilt to the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. In other words, we have a choice. And um, the wicked will be, uh, you know, uh, experience um, the judgment of God. The righteous shall be righteous. But if a wicked man, verse 21, he explains it further, turns from all his sins which he's committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed should be remembered against him because the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure in all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Listen, in this judgment that was coming, the Lord's saying, I don't delight in bringing judgment to the wicked. He, he wanted them to live. Follow after me and live. And he desires for us, as in the New Testament, we see that Paul would write to Timothy that, that it's God's desire that all men should come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter says it's, it's God's desire that we turn to him. You know, that it's not God's desire that any should perish, but come into repentance. That's his desire. He doesn't delight in bringing judgment to the wicked. And yet judgment would come. The good news for you and for me is we've turned, because all of us are guilty, we've turned to Jesus. He took the judgment on the cross for you and for me. And then in verse 24, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live. All the righteousness which he has done shall be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin in which he has committed because of them he shall die. Now verse 24 is the verse that really throws some people off and there are those who say, see you can lose your salvation because it says if a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, you know, uh, surely uh, he shall die. And, and so you can lose your salvation. Listen, here's a warning. It's a stern warning that don't depend on your goodness and that you were good and then all of a sudden you turn to wickedness. Remember, he's speaking to a nation, to a nation that had done, you know, righteously for a time, um, during the time they were following him, you know, Solomon's time, but then they had turned away from the Lord. And, and we know that Hezekiah, that he prayed that the Assyrians wouldn't come in, and they prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spared them. But you cannot, you know, depend on your parents' righteousness. The Lord doesn't have grandchildren. He has sons and daughters. So that's what's being said here, a generation that is sinning against me, but also that we can't just say, well, I was a good person for this long, and I had a few bad years, um, you know, the goodness outweighing the badness. That's not what's being said. And we know that as we go to the New Testament, you know, it isn't even being a good person that saves you. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. And we're going to see that, the reminder of that, even as we end the chapter here and kind of put it all together, because none of us are righteous. All of our righteousness are filthy rags before the Lord. But in verse 25, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it's because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. 
because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely die, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not fair. So they were saying, you're not fair, Lord, because you're judging us. And the house of Israel is not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his way, says the Lord God. Repent, here's the key, and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. The key here is turn away, repent, and turn away and get a new heart and a new spirit. There's only one way for you and I to do that, and that is turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. To come to him that we might become a new creation. And in the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke about, he said that you'll be, uh, have, a, uh, a, have a new heart, you'll have a new life, and, and you'll have a heart after God. It is the Spirit of God in us. And as we plead the blood of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can't live for the Lord in and of ourselves. It is coming to him, surrendering to him, and in the spirit of God that dwells in our hearts. And that's why I love this. He says, hey, this is what you're to do. Repent. That's the message of the gospel. Repent. Turn to Jesus and give yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Even as Paul would write, for those of us in Christ, we're a new creation in Christ. Behold, all things have passed away, all things become new. You see, it isn't that it's just renewed or we become a better person. We become a new person, a new heart. We were spiritually dead until we came to Christ, and now we are alive spiritually, born again by the Spirit of God. And I just want to say that that's an important message that we're to give to others that come to Christ. Let him give that person a new heart and a new spirit and new life and a new beginning. As we give the gospel, it's the work that he does. And to remember for us that we have the spirit of God in us, that not only are we free from the penalty of sin, but also free from the power of sin in our lives as we walk in his ways and turn to him. If you've never given your life to Christ, give your life to him. He is your salvation. He's the only one that can give you that new heart, that new beginning, forgiveness of sin, and bring you to where you truly do live for all eternity because he is the author of eternal life. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these important chapters. And we're all going to stand, be accountable before you. And, and Lord, you've given us the truth that the way to live is through Jesus Christ who came to give us life. And, Lord, that as we come to Jesus, that we are free from the penalty of sin, but also the Spirit of God in us to free us from the power of sin. We don't have to be under the curse of sin and darkness and deception. But you came to free us from that, to give us liberty, to free the captives. You brought us out of the darkness into your marvelous light. So, Lord, help us. And I know that as we grow up in homes that were sinful or um, unbelieving parents, that it does have an effect, long-lasting effects. But the Spirit of God is in us to help us to live for you 
as we become a new creation in Christ. I also pray, Lord, that, that we would understand this, that life comes through Jesus alone. And if anyone's listening, you've never given your life to Jesus. He is your salvation. He's the one that would give you a new heart, a new beginning, a new spirit. That is the spirit of God in you. And as you turn to him, he desires for you to walk with him, to belong to a, a new kingdom that will last forever, a new start. And if that's you, come to Christ. You can pray. Turn. Quit going in the direction you're going. And turn to Jesus and call out to him. And say, Jesus, you came and died for me because you love me. You came to give me hope, the only hope that there is. Forgiveness of sin, and you died on that cross for me. So forgive me of my sins, and you're alive. Be my personal Lord and Savior to give me a new heart become a new creation. I come and I confess you as Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning. And Lord, as you dwell in my heart, help me to walk after you and to live for you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And Father, I pray that as Christians that we wouldn't look to Egypt, make alliances with Egypt, but believe your word. You're the wonderful counselor. Your word is true to follow after you. And, Lord, it reminds me of a nation that we're in. We pray for a nation. As we see the, the rumblings around us, how far we're getting from you, faithless, that it is leading to perversity. And we're calling good evil and evil good. We pray for a spiritual awakening in our nation, a turning to you because we know that is the hope of our nation. For our leaders, Lord, for our communities, Lord, we need you. And, and Lord, I just pray for that. So may we be a declarer of truth, stand on truth, and of the good news of the gospel. Pray, bless everyone here as we go our way now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Hope to see you on Sunday. Great is your faith.